Well, good morning, One Church. What's up? My name is Carlo. I get to be one of the teaching pastors here. I'm glad that you are with us in this room. If you're watching in the video venue, welcome. Wherever you're at around the world, watching online, whether you're watching this live or later in the week, we are glad that you are connecting with us today. So glad you're here. We're in part two of our Proclaim series, a little mini-series we're doing through Acts chapter 17 through 20. And we're learning how we, just like the early church, have a mission that we, have, we get to accomplish for Jesus, and that's to proclaim the gospel of Jesus' grace. Gospel is a word that just means good news. Have you ever had received good news before? It's good news. It's, it's not news that bums us out. It's exciting news. Like you get to sleep in tomorrow, right? That's good news. If you're, you found out about that. Well, the good news is that we can't save ourselves, but God loved us so much that he sent his son that we might be able to be saved and to live and have a great life in him and through him. And so that's the news we proclaim, just like the early church was all about sharing that message. And that's what we're going to talk about today, messy evangelism. Evangelism is another kind of theological word, big word, that just simply means proclaiming the message of Jesus in word and in deed. And we're going to discover today that's often a messy process. So we'll be in Acts chapter 18. If you missed last week's message, go to onechurch.tv. You can watch that there or download our app. You can catch up on any of these uh, messages and the series we've done on the book of Acts. You can catch up on on that there. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. Uh, Any barbecue fans in the house? Right on. It's too, I know we're close to lunch, so I'm going to hurt some of you today talking about some barbecue. I love barbecue, and, and it's been said that Kansas City has the greatest barbecue on the planet. Like Texas does their thing, Memphis does their thing, but if you've not had Kansas City barbecue, you have not really had barbecue. I'm from Florida, so I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm just telling you, Kansas City barbecue is the truth. I had got the privilege several years ago to eat at the legendary Gates Barbecue. It's a legendary joint there in, in, in Kansas City. If you're from that area, you know what I'm talking about. Gates is phenomenal, phenomenal barbecue. Uh, there's some things I look for in, in a barbecue joint if I'm really going to eat there. First thing, that, and it's really important to me, is a barbecue joint has to have the right kind of vibe. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if there's no, if everyone in the barbecue joint is kind of skinny, I don't know if I want to eat there. You know what I'm saying? Like if the person cooking looks like they're on one of those organic, don't eat anything that has flavor, kind of vegan type diets, I'm, you just pro- probably don't want to be involved in the same eating situation as you. If you're not sweating over your food, like struggling as you're eating it, like I probably don't want to be in that kind of barbecue joint. You know, I'm a big dude myself, so I want people that look like me if I'm going to eat in the bar. It's like if you go to an Asian-styled restaurant, you would hope that some folks who are Asian-styled would be in there, right? I'm going to check in the kitchen, like who's cooking? If I go to El Toro on Fort Campbell Boulevard, right? I want to make sure my people are in there cooking the food. If it's supposed to be Latin food, you get what I'm saying. Don't look at me with those judgmental eyes. Y'all know y'all do the same thing, right? You wouldn't go to a soul food restaurant in the suburbs. You know what I'm talking about? Like you, come on, the vibe matters. You know what I'm saying? The vibe, the vibe absolutely matters. Well, Gates has the vibe, so it's, it's good. I also like, uh, some, some choices in my sauces, you know, like hot, hotter, spicy, sweet. I, I like the variety, you know, try a little bit of everything. Sometimes you need a different sauce for a different type of meat. And Gates has all those, those varieties as well. Most importantly, the most important thing, though, in a barbecue joint has to be they have to have plenty of napkins and a good bathroom, right? Because barbecue is messy, so you got to, in more than one way, you got to have plenty of napkins and you got to have a good bathroom, Right? You might say nice bathrooms and the napkins, really? Is that the most important thing? What's really the most important thing at a barbecue joint? The barbecue, right? 
It ain't about the sauce. It's not about the vibe. It's not about the napkins. It's not about the, that stuff is important, but the most important thing is the meat. Like, that's why we showed up. We've gathered here today to eat this barbecue, right? That, the meat is what matters the most. You're probably sitting here, and if you're new, wondering, what in the world does any of this have to do with the church and the book of Acts and Jesus stuff? This guy's lost his mind talking about barbecue. Here's, what, here's where it connects. You ready? I see a lot of people who are in the church and people who are not yet connected to the church but are making steps towards it. We, just like in that illustration about a barbecue joint, we often confuse what's the main thing. We focus more on the layers, the vibe, the, the ambiance, the style, the outside stuff. Not bad stuff, but we can tend to focus so much on that that we miss the point of why are we gathering. We miss the point of the main thing. You ever had that happen in your life? Something that you just get a little distracted from the mission and then you wonder, what am I doing here anyway? What is this all about anyway? It's really easy to get off track and, and become consumed with stuff that doesn't really, really matter in the big picture because it's not really the main thing. I've heard Christians all the time ask me, what's your worship like at your church? And I always respond to them, why do you care? We're not singing to you. Like, the songs are to God. Like, why is that a top question? In your mind, it's not a bad question to ask, but it's not the main question to ask. How long is your service? That matters. We have stuff to do, but it's not the main thing that matters. What denomination are you? What do you believe? Get those questions all the time. And they're not bad questions, but they're not the main question. There's a more important question we wrestle with following Jesus, or we have to wrestle with this on our steps towards Jesus. And it's why do I even need Jesus to begin with? Why do we need the church? Why do we gather? What is the good news? What is the big idea? What is the point of all of this stuff that we're doing? That is the main thing. And the main thing is messy. Because here's the truth. Men and women are spiritually lost until they receive Jesus, until they say yes to Jesus, follow him, repent of their sins. We're, we're lost. We're stuck in our garbage and in our mess without Jesus. And, and here's the trick. We can't earn it. We can't work our way into it. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's no sin I can commit to make God love me less. He's not going it's, to. It's so messy and complicated. And yet, because of his mercy and his grace, here's what he does. He comes into that mess, and he saves me. And he saves you. Not because of anything that we've done. That, my friends, is the good news. And that is the main thing. And so the message we proclaim as a church, as onechurch.tv, is that no one is perfect. Everyone's welcome, and anything can happen. That is the gospel. That is what Jesus has done for us, and it's what he does for other people. But it's messy. It's good news, but it's messy news. And it connects to our big idea today, which is this. People are worth the mess. At the end of the day, people are worth the mess. Two words in that big idea we have to let sit in our soul this morning, that people matter. Ministry, living for Jesus, connecting to the church is all about people. It's all about people. And with people always comes what? The mess. So the process is messy. The people are messy. But in the end, it's worth it because people are worth the mess. Any messes in the room right now? Right? Aren't you glad that you were worth it, right? 
So we're going to dig into Acts chapter 18 today and see how this big idea is lived out in the life of the Apostle Paul. We've been talking about Paul and his journeys expanding the church. So we're going to jump into Acts 18, and, and, and I'm going to tell a lot of stories. There's a lot of Bible we're going to get to to get to one point, one person. So hang with me. I'm going to try to break this down as much as we can along the way, but there really is one central person that we're going to focus on at the end of the message, and it's not the Apostle Paul. So Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says this, Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So last week, we learned about Paul being in Athens. He's in Greece. He's with the philosophers, the big thinkers, right? He had a conversation with them. He didn't preach at them. He didn't open up the Bible and say, well, thus saith the Lord. He didn't do any of that. He just looked around their environment, and he started having a conversation, connecting what they were doing. Paul said something like, I see you have a, a, a monument to an unknown God. Well, I can tell you who that God is. And he uses that connection to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with those people in Athens. It's like the, the high thinking of Athens provoked Paul to say something. Like he couldn't be silent. He had to proclaim this truth in Athens. And so he's there in Athens, leaves Athens, and he goes to another place called Corinth. So if, you're, if that name's familiar to you, there's a book in our New Testament, First and Second Corinthians. Those are letters that Paul wrote back eventually to these people here. So he arrives in Corinth. So he's provoked to have conversation in Athens, but when Paul gets to Corinth, he's afraid. Provoked in Athens, afraid in Corinth. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you might think, Carly, you're crazy. There was no fear in the Apostle Paul. He wasn't scared. If you don't even know who Paul is, you might wonder, well, how could I possibly know what a man in the Bible was feeling just because he showed up at Corinth? Here's how I know Paul was afraid in Corinth. You ready for this? He told it. He tells us so. Not too deep, right? Not complicated. I know he was afraid because he tells us that he was afraid. Where does he tell us this? So like I said, Paul takes, he takes several journeys. We've already read through one of these journeys in the book of Acts. He ends up taking three long journeys, it's believed. On that third journey, he goes to a place called Ephesus. And while he's at Ephesus, he's there for a long time. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a letter back to the churches that I helped start. And he writes a letter to the church at Corinth. And here's what he says in the opening of that letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. So he just tells us right there, hey, when I showed up, you may not have known this, but I was afraid. You may not have known it, but I was scared. I was weak. I was humble. I was afraid. Much fear, much trembling when I showed up. What was Paul afraid of? Well, up until this point, in Paul's journey to share Jesus with everyone, things, uh, they didn't really work out for him all the time, right? Simple things like the entire town chasing him, like people stoning him and leaving him for dead, him being beaten half naked and left in jail, you know, the everyday stuff we deal with, right? That's what's happening to Paul. Every time he goes to start doing the Jesus stuff and sharing this good news, he ends up running for his life or having his life almost taken from him or he's beaten, he's abandoned. It's just not a good time for him every time he shows up somewhere new. So by the time Paul gets to Corinth, he's at a place of humility. Like he's been trying to do what God called him to do and he sees a measure of success, but more often than not, he gets physically beaten up, physically attacked. Some of you are like, man, the devil's attacking me. Haters are against me. None of you guys are getting beat up every single week. If not, come see me. I'll give you some self-defense classes, and we, we can take care of that. But none of us are getting beat up every single day, every week, that we're trying to do what we do. But this is what's happening 
to Paul. So he's afraid because he has this experience of physical and emotional abuse. You with me? It's a mess. God, I try to do the Jesus stuff, and here's my reward for doing the Jesus stuff. I get beaten, and they steal my shoes, right? That's what keeps happening to Paul. Not to mention he goes to Corinth. Corinth was a hustling and bustling city, much like our modern uh, cultural centers in America where there's music and there's art and there's entertainment. Think like New York City, Chicago, L.A., Miami, Atlanta. It's one of those kind of towns, right? Nashville. Like, it's not a little suburban town. It's a big, hustling city. And it was known for a lot of things, but one thing in particular it was known for, and it's kind of dark. Corinth was known for prostitution. Sorry, moms and dads. It's PG-13 talk, right? They're, It was known for prostitution. In fact, it was an insult to call someone a Corinthian girl. Like, that gets you smacked in the face, right, real quick, to say that to someone. That's where Paul was going. So he goes from the center of high thought to this very, very urban city center known for its dark side, for its red light district. Yet, in the midst of that filth and in that darkness and in that hurt, Paul does what he's called to do, and God does what only he can do, and God calls out from that group of people some citizens that eventually become the church. So when Paul shows up, he's afraid of what's going to happen. Let's keep reading. Verse 2 says, There, so this is in Corinth, there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. So, Paul meets two people who are kind of believers. He leads them, they they connect, they start a little community group, right? Just those three. And he ends up living with them and working with them. So, Paul gets to Corinth, and he gets a job. He gets a job. He goes to work to support himself financially, so then he has some freedom. He can preach and work his job. He's a tent maker, so literally he made tents, but he also fashioned uh, all kinds of furnishings and things that would go inside those kind of traveling caravan things. So bottom line, he goes and he gets a job, and, and the church at Corinth actually starts in a small group and at work. Isn't that cool? I can't stress this enough. So much of sharing the good news of Jesus happens in the mundane, messy, boring everyday stuff of your life. Some of us, we want to do something for Jesus, and we're looking for this big moment. We want to speak at this conference or get a microphone, and the answer is right there in your job. It's where God wants to do something in you and through you. It's the mess of our job. It's the sweat of the hot yoga studio. It's the soccer field on a Saturday when you're there all day long with your kids, right? It's in that everyday mundane mess. That's where God uses. At one church, we call that investing and inviting. I invest in the people who are already in my life. I invite them to Jesus, and that starts right where I am. And so the Apostle Paul, that's what he does. He meets these people, starts living with them, starts working with them, and, and God does great things and building that church. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue. What was the synagogue? That was just the, the, the gathering for the Jewish people. So they didn't believe Jesus was their Savior. They didn't believe in Jesus. But that's where the Jews would gather to go over the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call today the Old Testament. They'd pray. They'd read the Scriptures. And that's what they would do in that environment. So Paul would go to them first, and he would try to preach to them. Look, it says trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. So every Sabbath, he'd go preach trying to convince them about Jesus. Verse 5. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. Paul spent all his time doing what? Preaching the word. 
he testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, that's confusing. I thought Paul was a tent maker. Now, two verses later, it's saying he spent all his time preaching the word. Well, we find out later on in another New Testament letter titled 1 Thessalonians that Silas and Timothy, they bring from the Macedonia region. If you remember, we talked about the church at Philippi, Philippians, a couple weeks ago where that church kind of gets started. They were really good at giving offerings and supporting Paul. So they send a large offering with Silas and Timothy, and it allows Paul to walk away from tent making for a season and just focus on preaching. So up to this point, Paul was doing a lot of stuff on his own. He was zealous for Jesus. He was trying to go out and do stuff, but he kept running into these walls. And he's learning some lessons here in Corinth that people matter and that people are worth the mess and that you, got, you, you need people to help you. All of a sudden now he's got Priscilla and Aquila. They provide him a house and financial means, and now two other people come and bring him an offering that was collected by another group of people, and it's all starting to come together for Paul. Verse 6. So Paul's preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. Verse 6. But when they, so that's the Jews, they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. And from now on, I will go and preach to the Gentiles. So Paul kicks the dirt off his shoulders, tells the haters goodbye, and says, listen, I'm not wasting my time anymore with you religious folks. I'm going to go to the Gentiles, the non-believers. They don't know anything about God or the Bible or Scripture. I'm going to go to them, have some conversations, and share Jesus with them. Every time he tries to start in the synagogue, what keeps happening to him is it ends up in someone getting beaten up and abused. Usually that someone is Paul, right? So he's like, forget it. I'm done. I'm going to move on. Verse 7. Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard they became believers and they were baptized. So you might wonder at this point, what's the point of all this information? What's the point of all of these names? If we read it too fast, it just seems like a random list of historical facts. But what's powerful is that every word of the Bible is inspired and it's intentional, including Acts chapter 18. And Luke, who wrote this, is listing to us many of the key players who are going to go on to help Paul's ministry exponentially grow. The church is going to rapidly expand in the coming years off of the backs of some of these just random people who live next door to the synagogue. I like that guy, Paul. Hey, Paul, you can come talk and hold your meetings over here. Just simple things like that. All of a sudden, everything starts to change. Up to this point in Paul's life, he'd done some good. He'd seen some growth. But God's about to blow it up in a good way in his life. But it was not without a price. Paul was going to have to pay a greater price he was going to have to invest more in people. He was going to have to slow way, way down in his strategy. But in the end, it was going to work out. Verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him what? Don't be afraid. Why would God tell Paul to not be afraid? Because he was afraid. Guys, this is not complicated. These are all loaded questions. I'm, these are softballs I'm throwing up to you, right? Why would God tell him don't be afraid? Because he was afraid. So back to earlier. How do I know that Paul was scared at Corinth? Because Paul tells us so, and right here Luke confirms it. Paul was afraid. So afraid that God comes to him in a vision to comfort him and say, don't be afraid, speak out, don't be what? Silent. For I am with you. That's so beautiful. 
Fear not is one of the most commonly seen commands we see in the scripture. God telling us, fear not. Do not be afraid. Fear not. And here's what's cool. That command is usually followed by the promise, for I am with you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. Psalm 23 tells us that. Don't be afraid because God is with you. And that's the same message that God is giving, the Lord is giving uh, Paul here. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the word of God. That's such a powerful passage because this has not happened in Paul's life up to this point. He actually stays put and proclaims Jesus in a new way. And I think it has everything to do with what Jesus told him. And if you're here this morning and you keep hearing us talk about investing and inviting in people and proclaiming the gospel and Easter's coming and invite, but you're still kind of apprehensive about how to do that. I think if we break down what Jesus just told Paul, it really helps us understand this messy process of sharing Jesus. And if you're here and you're not following Jesus, I think there's some truth in here for wherever you're at in your life that'll help you. So what exactly did God say to Paul? In verse 9, 10, and 11, to Paul's fear, God speaks truth to him. Don't be afraid. So to his fear, God calls it out. Don't be afraid. You have no reason to fear. Don't be afraid. To Paul's pain, what does he tell Paul? No one will hurt you. Remember what keeps happening to Paul. He keeps getting beat up. He keeps getting stoned. He wasn't a masochist, right? He didn't like that. He keeps suffering physically for doing the word of God. And yet here there's a new promise from God. No one will hurt you. Here in Corinth, no one will hurt you. So to his fear, don't be afraid. To his pain, no one will hurt you. To his loneliness, I love this. What does God say? I'm with you. I am with you. You don't have to do this alone. I am with you. And then to Paul's strategy, he flips it on its head and he tells Paul, I have many people in this city. You don't have to do it alone anymore because I already have people here that are going to come alongside and help you. Leaders that you can train. I'm going to be with you. No one is going to hurt you. Do not be afraid. This is crazy that Paul, God would tell Paul, hey, I've got many people in this city because I'm sure Paul's like, who? We got Crispus and Aquila and Priscilla, but who are these people? But this means that Paul is going to have to get into the mess of the Corinthian people and he's going to have to preach and share the good news. And he's going to be doing that. But what God's telling him is, I've already prepared hearts to receive the message. You do your part. I've already done my heart. God is the only one who can change a heart, right? God's the only one who can change us from the inside out. So it's like he's telling Paul, just be faithful to what you're called to do. And it's going to be amazing. God had already prepared some hearts, and he'd already shown Paul the new strategy. Small groups, smaller groups of gatherings of people, messy people, life on life. He lived with Priscilla and Aquila, right? So this wasn't some fancy church type. You live with somebody, you're going you're gonna to see all, all of the glory, right, that comes with the private life of living with someone. You're going to do life together. What's fascinating is in the book of Acts, only two churches started larger than a small group. That's the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, and the church at Antioch had thousands of people when it started. But other than that, every single church we see start, Philippians, 
uh, Ephesus, all these churches, here's how they started. One person had one conversation with another messy person. They invited them into their life. They gathered in their house day by day, and more people gathered, and then they would split and grow and gather. Life change happens in messy, ugly community, and that's what we see happen right there, all because one person does something. So what do we learn from those quick verses there? Well, we gotta, when it comes to sharing the good news, it's messy. But we got to remember that God is in control of that mess. Whose message is it after all? It's God's message, right? It's his truth. He's in control of the outcome. He's the one that can change a heart. He's the one that controls how people receive or don't. So we don't have to get into that business. We just got to be faithful to sharing Jesus in word and deed with people. God's in control of the mess. It's his good news, not mine. Second thing is that God will sustain you through the mess. And this is powerful. Sustain. He's going to keep you. He's going to make sure you don't fall. He's going to help you. He's going to give you everything you need to keep pushing forward. He does that through his peace by telling us, hey, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And he does that through relationships. You need people. You need other people in your life, on the journey with you. The Bible is full of scripture that tells us about the power of us working together. You want to change the world? You can't do it by yourself. You want to see people come to know Jesus? You want your life to grow and you, you just sick of where you are now? You want to take a step forward? You cannot do it by yourself. You need people. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, it's in Ecclesiastes. It was written by King Solomon. This is what he says about it. Two people can accomplish more than twice as much as one. They get a better return for their labor. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But people who are alone when they fall are in what? Real trouble. And on a cold night, two under the same blanket can gain warmth from each other. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two standing back to back can conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. People matter, and people are worth the mess. We need people to proclaim this good news about Jesus. We need people in our lives to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We can't do it alone. And this is the lesson Paul is learning in the book of Acts. And so what's really cool is you, Luke kind of gives us the historical facts up to this point. Here are the facts. Here's what happened. And then in verse 12, he's going to actually give us a practical application of this big idea. It's a really cool story. Let's look at it. Verse 12. But when Gallio became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. Some of you might be thinking, here we go again. Paul's in court, about to get beat down, about to get thrown back into the dungeon again. This looks and seems just like what always happened to Paul before, right? Jews rise up, Paul gets locked up, he gets arrested. Verse 13, they accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. Verse 14, but just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names in your Jewish law, take care of it yourself. I refuse to judge such matters. And I know in Paul's brain, the record needle scratched like, what? That is not how I saw this going, Right. Usually, this is the point where y'all start punching me in the head and taking my shoes off, right? Like, this is usually what happened. But what did God promise Paul? Don't be afraid. I am with you. 
no one will harm or attack you. I have many people in this city. You remember that a couple verses ago? That's what God promised Paul. And now here Paul is face to face with the same thing that keeps happening. But instead, this time, Paul doesn't get beat up. But someone has to get beat up. Verse 16. He threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. Some of y'all are laughing at that, right? You've seen that on television, right? They beat him up right in the courtroom, but Gallio paid no attention. So put yourself in the scene. You hate Paul. You can't stand this guy. He's messing up the status quo. He's hanging out with all these people you don't like. So you finally got your way. We got him arrested. He's in front of court. Gallio is going to give us what we want. We want Paul dead. And Sosthenes, he's our leader, and he's our lawyer. And if anyone can bring this to a conviction, Sosthenes is the man. But instead, what happens? The judge takes one look at the case and says, get out of my courtroom with that nonsense. So the crowd, hungry for blood, looking for someone to beat up, they turn to Sosthenes. Say, somebody's got to get punched in the face and have their shoes stolen. It's going to be you. So they beat him up. What in the world does that have to do with anything? It introduces us to a guy named Sosthenes. Highlight that in your Bible. Write that name down, Sosthenes. It introduces us to this guy. He's a prosecutor. It's his job to get Paul killed. Before Paul came to know Jesus, I don't know if you knew this, go all the way back to Acts chapter 7, 8, 9, that's the same thing that Paul was doing was chasing down Christians, trying to bring them to trial so that they could be killed. So Sosthenes kind of has the same job as the synagogue leader, but he failed at the job. So the crowd beats the fire out of Sosthenes because they couldn't do anything to Paul. Cool story. Why is that in the Bible? Here's why. Years later, Paul writes a letter back to the church at Corinth. He writes 1st and 2nd Corinthians. If you're familiar, it's in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 1st and 2nd Corinthians are very intentional letters written to the church. Much of how we do church, we get from that, that letter. If you've ever been at a wedding and they say, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. You guys familiar with that? Have you heard that before? That was written to the church at Corinth to talk to them about how they should get along in 1st Corinthians 13. So those are two very important very powerful letters in, in us following Jesus. They're important letters on your journey. Go read them this afternoon. Very good, First and Second Corinthians. And the church at Corinth was a mess of a church. I mean, one church is a mess of a church. We just all confess that we're messes in this room, right? But at Corinth, like, you had father-in-law, Dayton, the, the brother, and all kinds of crazy relationships happening, and they would greet each other with a holy kiss, if you know what I'm talking about, every time they met together. And that place was off the hook. So Paul's writing back to the church at Corinth, to kind of encourage them and bring some correction and teach them some powerful things. Here's where the connection with Sosthenes is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very first verse. Look at what it says. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Sosthenes is there. The guy whose job it was to kill Paul, the guy whose job it was to, to shut out the work of God ends up becoming a Christ follower, ends up joining Paul's team, and ends up helping to reach the very community that at one time beat him and left him for dead. Isn't that powerful? Sosthenes, this random name we come across in the book of Acts, ends up helping to change 
the world. This probably happened because after Sosthenes is beaten, left for dead, guess who he was left with? Paul. So more often than not, more likely the church loved on Sosthenes. They probably took care of his wounds, practiced that good Samaritan stuff they learned from Jesus, took care of him, brought him into the church, loved him, taught the truth. Sosthenes ends up saying yes to Jesus and joins the church and joins Paul on this great, great movement to change the world. He helps Paul serve this community that once beat him. People are worth the mess. Sosthenes was a mess, and Paul didn't write him off, and the church didn't write him off. Even when Sosthenes' own people rejected him, the church and Paul, they don't reject them. And look what happens. That is the power of life change. So we learn that God's in control of the mess evangelism and that God will sustain us. But the third thing we learn, and it's so important, is that God often uses messy people to change the world. At one time, Paul was a hot mess, and look at what God's doing. Sosthenes was a mess, and God used him. Every one of those people in the church, God used to do something powerful. You might be here, and you're not connected to the church at all. You're watching online, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and you think you're too messed up to follow Jesus on this journey. You think you've gone too far. Let me tell you, everyone is welcome. Nobody is perfect, and anything can happen. That's not just about what we do on Sunday it's that's the rhythm we have. That's the, what we say in everything that we do. We go find those messy people because that was once us. So what do we do with this? First thing is we got to ask God today, what do you want me to say? What are the words to help start the conversation this week? God, what do you want me to say to someone to lead them? If you're not following Jesus, God, what do you want me to say? How can I make this relationship? How can I say yes to you? Second thing is to ask God, who do you want me to reach? God, show me who's the Sosthenes in my life that I need to reach out to. Who's the messy person that I've been avoiding, God, and then help me to take that step. And then finally, keep people first. I, yeah, I hear people say all the time, I love church, but I can't stand the people. That sounds funny, but the church is the people. It's all about the people. So we're going to love always. And if you're an introvert like me, you could be a people person by praying for people. I'm not saying you've got to join every single party, right? But you've got to understand people are worth the mess. My father passed away when I was a teenager, and I was just hell on earth for a lot of people, menace to society, including my student pastor. I had to go to church, even though I wasn't living for Jesus. And there were two people, my youth pastor, John Harwell, and one of our group leaders, Dan Place, and they loved me relentlessly. In spite of my mess and my rebellion, they never gave up on me. And I'm sitting here right now because two people years ago said, Carlo is worth the mess. People are spiritually lost until they receive Jesus. That's the main thing. That's why we gather. That's the message that we proclaim. So let's not run away from that mess. Instead, let's embrace it because people are worth the mess. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son that we might have life. God, not just eternally, but life right now. Help us as we're on this journey, God, to be faithful to you. God, if there's a person here who's not yet said yes to you, God, let this be the moment they say, God, I'm sorry. I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. Help me, God. And I know as they pray that, you do what only you can do. You save them by your mighty hand. Help those of us here, God, who are living for you to embrace the mess this week, starting today, because we know that people are worth it, God. And we love you for what you're going to continue to do in us and through us in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.